Well, this has been a really special day for Lisa and for me to be back with uh, so many old friends at 10th Church, to have a chance already to begin to make some new friends as well. Uh, So grateful for the opportunity to preach not only this morning, but also this evening. So very, really full of Thanksgiving tonight, which will be appropriate, I suppose, for the psalm that we're going to share together. One thing I didn't mention uh, this morning, just another reason for gratitude. You know, this church really put its fingerprints on the Riken children. Um, You'd be surprised if you knew us 11, 12 years ago to see them now. Uh, Lisa is now the shortest member of the family. We've got several six-footers, including Catherine. Um, Josh, his wife Anna, our granddaughter Ellie, uh, living, serving in Denver, Colorado. Kirsten married in southern Illinois. And uh, we've got uh, Jack and Catherine with, with us at Wheaton College, and uh, Caroline, I suppose, in high school caring for her parents in their old age. So that's, uh, that's what's happening with the Riken family. Um, they really wish they could have been with us. Uh, they have a special place in their hearts uh, for so many of the people of this congregation as well. Well, we're in Psalm 107 this evening. Uh, If you're like me, you lament the fact that Christmas advertising comes earlier and earlier every year. October 1st, I saw my first ad on Hallmark Television for a Christmas special. It seemed a little early to me. But it is never too early to turn our thoughts to Thanksgiving to giving uh, praise to God for his abundant blessings in our lives, not just on Thanksgiving Day, but why not the whole month of November? So I thought, what better psalm in this month of November than this great Thanksgiving psalm, Psalm 107, so beautifully read for us in its entirety. I believe this is a psalm that every American especially ought to know. You might think of it as the Pilgrim Psalm, because it's a psalm that Americans have been making their own at least since 1620 when Governor William Bradford and over a hundred other Puritans boarded the Mayflower and set sail as it turned out for Plymouth Bay. You know the story, you know it had been a perilous voyage. Sailing the stormy Atlantic had taken the pilgrims more than two long months. Four passengers died at sea, one within very sight of land. And it almost seems that the ones who died at sea were the fortunate ones, because during the bitterly cold winter that followed, roughly half of the remaining settlers perished from illness or starvation, almost all of the women, many of the fathers, most of the survivors when spring finally arrived were very sick. After all of that suffering, what psalm would you sing? Would it be a psalm of thanksgiving? Governor Bradford's diary makes it abundantly clear that Psalm 107 was on the hearts and minds and on the lips of these pilgrim forefathers and foremothers. This is what Bradford wrote in his diary, may not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, our fathers were Englishmen which came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in the wilderness, but they cried unto the Lord. And he heard their voice and looked on their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord because he is good and his mercies endure forever. 
Those words ought to sound familiar because you've heard those verses five times each in the reading of the psalm this evening. Bradford went on to say, yes, let them which have been redeemed of the Lord show how he delivered them from the hand of the oppressor when they wandered in the desert wilderness, when they found no city to dwell in, when they were hungry and thirsty, when their souls were overwhelmed. Let them confess before the Lord his loving kindness and his wonderful works before the sons of men. Governor Bradford was echoing the words of Psalm 107 and specifically its opening invitation to praise. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, the ones he has redeemed from trouble. This refrain gets repeated and repeated again throughout the psalm. And as the pilgrims reflected on their experiences, they viewed this psalm as a kind of summary of their physical sufferings and of their spiritual struggles and their testimony of praise to God for answering their prayers again and again, rescuing them again and again. As we read this psalm tonight in the great city of Philadelphia, we can think of those hard experiences the hard experiences of the pilgrims. We can go all the way back to the hard experiences of the children of Israel. We'll certainly do that. And we can also make this psalm our own because we too are pilgrims for Jesus Christ and often cry out for help on this hard spiritual journey. Psalm 107, you'll notice this if you look at the heading of the psalm, comes at the beginning of book five of the Psalter. But it's worth just flipping a page back to realize, or even two pages back, that Psalm 105 is a kind of story psalm telling the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Psalm 106 is a story of story psalm telling the story of Israel coming into the promised land, uh, ultimately culminating in their tragic captivity in Babylon. Here is a kind of three-part history of the people of God. It's a summary of everything that happens in the Old Testament, and Psalm 107 is here to tell the end of that story. It seems to be a psalm, and this is true, I think, of pretty much everything in book five of the Psalter. It seems to be a psalm about Israel's return from exile and with a call to praise God for this great deliverance. In Psalm 107, the children of Israel give praise to God as their Redeemer for bringing them back home. The redeemed of the Lord have returned to the city of promise. And the appropriate thing for them to do now is to sing this psalm of pilgrim praise. If you look through the psalm, you can see that it's divided somewhat by stanzas. And there are four dangers that are recounted here. Sufferings God's people endured as homeless wanderers, that's verses 4 through 9. Then as hopeless captives, verses 10 through 16. As rebellious idolaters, you might say, in verses 17 to 22. And then as storm-tossed mariners, running all the way from verse 23 to 32. That's followed by something that I think sets their experiences in a contemporary context, not just looking to the, to the past, but talking about what God is going to do in their lives in the present, before a final concluding verse that I think comes as a bit of surprise. And in each of these desperate circumstances, the children of Israel prayed 
for God's rescue. You hear their heartfelt petition again and again. Verse 6, verse 13, verse 19, verse 28. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And their praise gets repeated as well, because every time God prayed, every time they prayed, and then God answered, they turned as they should to praise. And in verses 8 and 15 and 21 and 31, you hear this summons. It's an invitation to praise. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Here is a living song of praise to the God who answers and then keeps on answering our prayers all the way through our spiritual pilgrimage. I think you hear a little bit of an echo of this uh, psalm in a more contemporary gospel song, the one that Mahalia Jackson made famous, How I Got Over. Do you know that gospel song? It's one of my favorites. Often when I'm flying this place or that place around the country, I have uh, Mahalia Jackson on just for my spiritual encouragement. And she looks back over the years of God's work in her life and with a sense of wonder, how did I make it over? How did I get through that? What, what enabled me to get past this difficulty and that difficulty? And the answer, of course, is God was with her every step of the way. And so she lifts her voice in pilgrim praise. And I want to thank him for how he brought me. And I want to thank God for how he taught me. Oh, thank my God how he kept me. I'm going to thank him because he never left me. All of that is much better sung than said, and particularly if Mahalia Jackson is doing it. But it's really the, the testimony of every pilgrim everywhere. We have our own thanksgiving to sing. And Psalm 107 gives us a marvelous model of how to sing it. I, I think every one of us can find somewhere in this psalm our story, some trial, some parallel, similar to what the children of Israel suffered And so this is our psalm too, as much as it was William Bradford's. It's our testimony of all the times God brought us home, set us free, forgave us, and delivered us. Let's look in turn at these main stanzas. First, a home for the homeless. The word that introduces each of these stanzas, you'll notice it there at the beginning of verse 4, is the word some, and your first time through, you might think that this refers to four different people who went through four different things. Some wandered in the desert, others sat in the darkness, then there was this other group, they were the fools, then there's another group that went down to the sea in ships. I think the whole psalm, though, is better understood as recounting four experiences that the better part of the whole nation of Israel shared over the course of their history. The word sometimes, rather than the word some, may capture the sense more clearly. Sometimes we wandered in the desert. Sometimes we sat in darkness and and so forth. This is a, a telling of Israel's national history after her return from exile. And here in the first stanza, you have a home for the homeless, the wayfarers return. As the story begins, they seem to lack even the very best basic necessities of life. They're lost. They don't know where they are. They're, they're hungry. They're thirsty. And in extreme spiritual distress, at least they had a prayer. And so they cried to the Lord 
and he delivered them. Here is the first answer to prayer in Psalm 107, but it won't be the last. I think the repetition of this verse as we encounter it again and again in this psalm is such a strong confirmation that God loves to answer his people when we pray. What is your main prayer concern right now? I was so encouraged this morning to speak with a longtime member of this church who's prayed for many, many years for the spiritual return of her children. And she was able to testify that one of her children has come back to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So encouraging and also encouraging for her as she prays now for the next one. Whatever, whatever the trouble is, whatever trouble you're in, God is able and willing to rescue. And in this case, God gave his people exactly what they needed, a home. And not just any home, you'll notice it is a great city. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. And presumably when they reached that city, they found all the food and drink that they needed to thrive, all the other things that they were lacking. It was all answered when they came, came finally to a true home. It's not mentioned by name, but presumably the city that this psalm most calls to mind is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which following David's conquests in Canaan and beyond, became Israel's primary home, the center of Israel's national life. And for the exiles who returned from Babylon, the holy city was in so many ways the object of their affections. For many long years, 70 years of captivity, they had always wanted to go back home to Jerusalem, the city of their God. It's also interesting the way this stanza in the language that it uses calls the exodus to mind, because after their deliverance from Egypt, the children of Israel had so many of these experiences. They wandered in desert wastes. They were hungry. They were thirsty. I think, in effect, what the psalmist is doing here is using Israel's experience in the exodus to describe their return from exile. I love the way that Hassel Bullock, who taught Old Testament for many years at Wheaton College, describes this. He says, this is an excellent example of how the Psalms use the colors from the palette of past historical eras to paint the picture of another era. It's really a way of saying that when you see God work in one story, it helps you understand how to tell a new story. And that's what the pilgrims did. They colonized North America in 1620, adopting this psalm as their psalm of thanksgiving. If you know a little bit of their story, you know that they had suffered religious persecution under James I. They were exiled from England first to Holland. They were hoping to find a home there, but that proved to be pretty much equally inhospitable. And as Bradford describes their spiritual experiences in those communities, he said, we were hunted and persecuted on every side. Some were taken and clapped up in prison. Others had their houses beset, watched night and day. They barely escaped with their hands. Most had to flee, leave their houses and habitations, leave the means of their livelihood. And not even the good ship Mayflower belonged to Governor Bradford and his fellow wanderers. But when that borrowed ship finally reached the shores of Massachusetts and they were able to erect some rude wooden shelters before the full onset of winter, finally they had a place to call their home. 
In so many ways, these words described that experience, these words here in Psalm 107. And they cried to the Lord in their distress, and He delivered them, and He led them to a place that they could call home. This psalm, I believe, and specifically this stanza, is a strong encouragement to anyone who ever needs a place to live, ever needs food to put on a table. We may ask God to provide for our basic daily needs, any provision we need. And when we see that provision, when our prayers are answered, we should praise God for giving us food and shelter. His grace deserves our gratitude. And with the psalmist and with the pilgrims, we thank the Lord for his steadfast love, his wondrous works for the children of men. But even those material provisions are there to point us to a deeper spiritual reality. The New Testament uses such similar language to describe our soul's essential need for Jesus Christ, for His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. He is the true bread from heaven that satisfies spiritual hunger. He is the spring of water welling up to eternal life. Find your way home to Jesus. Find your way home to Jesus, and God will provide everything that will satisfy you, everything you need. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. Take verse 9, those words, as a promise for you in Jesus. Well, there's a second predicament here in Psalm 107, and it's as bad as the first one, if not even worse, because apparently no one can help. That's what you see at the, at the end there of verse 12. People in prison, in the shadow of death, and no one there to help them. It's easy to think of prisoners from the history of Israel, Joseph, Jeremiah, think of hard labor here, you think of the children of Israel in Egypt, but for the most part, all of those prisoners were innocent of any serious wrongdoing, but if you look here at verse 11, these people have only themselves to blame because they rebelled against the work of the Lord. That's why they're in such desperate trouble. And so this stanza, I think, ties so much more clearly to Israel's 70 years of captivity in Babylon which came, and all the prophets said this as a direct result of their rampant idolatry, of their repeated failure to listen to the prophets who came to them and told them to repent. Nevertheless, even though the pilgrims probably didn't think they were totally to blame for all their troubles, they, they still identified with this main stanza, second main stanza of Psalm 107. Certainly they understood their own depravity. And they took this language of darkness and affliction and confinement nearly literally because many of them, too, were put in prison. Here's how Bradford described it in his diary. Pitiful it was to see the heavy case of poor women in distress weeping and crying on every side for husbands that were carried away, others not knowing what would become of them and their little ones, crying for fear, quaking with cold, being thus apprehended. They were hurried from one place to another, from one form of injustice to another, till in the end they knew not what to do. So what should a prisoner do? 
What should someone do who is sitting in darkness? And what should any of us do when we find ourselves suffering, in part due to our own sinful choices? It's easy to think that we deserve better, but sometimes we know we're getting some of the things we actually deserve. So what do you do then? You cry for mercy. That's what you do. That's what the children of Israel did. That's what the prisoners did in Psalm 107. They cried to the Lord in their distress, in their iniquity, and the Lord rescued them. Here is another notable testimony of answered prayer. Notice specifically what is said in verse 14, how the Lord answered their prayers. He brought them out of darkness, out of the shadow of death. He burst their bonds apart. It was such a great deliverance that it gave them another reason to sing. And by this point in the psalm, you're just beginning to realize that this is going to get familiar. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And the psalmist extends that refrain in verse 16. He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Hopefully it is true for you that the longer you go in this pilgrimage, the longer you live the Christian life, the more answers to prayers you have, which gives you more reasons to praise. And we are joining tonight this joyful company of thankful people when we pray for God to deliver us from spiritual bondage and praise him for setting us free from sin and death. This is why Jesus came to rescue us from our helpless captivity to iniquity. And what hope this gives for you, for a loved one, feeling so imprisoned by sin that there seems to be no way out. Even when we are beyond any ability to help ourselves, God can still liberate us from unholy unholy thoughts, from addictive behaviors, from things that are keeping us in spiritual chains. And when when he does that in our lives, we lift up a song of spiritual freedom. God brings deliverance for the captives. Well, what else can we say about the experience of the people of God? Sometimes people were homeless. Sometimes they were in prison. Sometimes they fell, they fell sick. And this third stanza of the psalm seems especially relevant in these COVID times. These people were sick even to the point of death. And it's, it's very vividly displayed in verses 17 and 18. These people who through their iniquities suffered affliction, they loathed any kind of food. They, do, they drew near to the gates of death. If you've had a serious illness, maybe you recognize this, these symptoms, loss of appetite, despairing thoughts of imminent demise. When the people in Psalm 107 felt like they were going to die and almost did, they cried to the Lord for his deliverance. And the pilgrims who settled in Plymouth, Massachusetts felt the same way, at least the ones who made it to springtime did. After what Governor Bradford described as the starving time of their first long winter, most of the survivors were so sick that they could easily relate to this near-death experience in Psalm 107. I can imagine them as Governor Bradford was reciting this psalm in the company of of those pilgrims. that they, When they came to that verse, they said, yeah, I know what that's like. I've, I've been there. That's just the way I felt. Maybe it's the way I still feel. 
Like the captive prisoners in stanza two, these medical patients in stanza three were suffering the guilt of their sin. That's why the psalmist calls them, he's pretty frank about it in verse 17, fools. These are self-inflicted wounds, the consequence of their sinful ways. And some sins surely are like that. I suppose, I suppose nearly all addictive sins are self-destructive in just this way. Many sins have a sort of natural, divinely ordained propensity to destroy the person who commits them. But God is so gracious that the prayers of even the most sin-sick soul may receive his merciful cure. And I think one of the most encouraging things about this psalm, as we pray it and praise it for ourselves, and as we pray it and praise it for others, one of the most encouraging things is this psalm is not for people who deserve God's favor. It's clear they don't deserve that in many ways. And in many ways, the children of Israel didn't deserve to be brought back from their captivity in Babylon, but God heard their prayers, their cries, nonetheless. Here in Psalm 107, it's depicted these Spiritual pilgrims languishing on their beds, lifting their prayers to heaven, and they are healed. What a beautiful verse it is. Verse 19, the repeated refrain, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. Notice what is said in verse 20, he sent out his word and healed them. Because sin is a spiritual sickness as well as a moral bondage. These people needed more than a ransom for prison or merely a medical cure. They needed the healing and wholeness that comes from the Word of God. The psalmist testimony here teaches us what to do when we are sick or, or maybe I should say, and or suffering from sin. We should pray for God's healing. We should turn to biblical truth for the salvation of our souls. And then when we are healed we can offer him more songs of grateful praise. I think as the psalm goes along, the mood becomes increasingly exuberant. The psalmist summons yet another song of thanksgiving, and you get the sense as you go along that your heart should be rising with this, that if you didn't answer the invitation to praise the first time, and almost did the second time, by the time you get to the third time, you're ready to to greet this general invitation with a personal resolution. I want to do that. I want to thank the Lord for His loving kindness. Let me offer my life as a thanksgiving of praise for the way God healed me. Let me Tell people what God has done for me through Jesus Christ. Everything the Gospels say about Jesus is true. That through him the blind receive their sight, the lame are made to walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And so we are saved to give glory to God, our lives more and more moving in the direction of praise. Well, the fourth and final deliverance in this psalm may be the most dramatic of all. It's a rescue at sea. And aren't these lines of poetry so beautiful? Starting at verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. 
Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. The Israelites, compared to other peoples in the ancient world, were not particularly known for their skill as mariners, but they did sometimes sail. And on one, at least one memorable occasion, they almost perished. The psalmist describes this so vividly, it, it almost seems certain that he had nearly been lost at sea. The ships rising and falling on the swells, the way that's described very vividly. The staggering seasickness or struggling across the deck of a ship in the heavy waves. The utter terror. I mean, the psalmist knew firsthand what it was to despair of life itself. And so did the pilgrims who boarded the Mayflower in 1620, traveling a storm-tossed ocean in a cracked and leaky vessel, some of the most experienced seafarers feared they would never complete the voyage. And although I think it's true sailors are not always known for their saintliness, they can pray like choir boys when their lives depend on it. The crew of Jonah's ship is a really notable example. So are the disciples who cried out to Jesus when a storm rose on the Sea of Galilee. They're as experienced as they were, their tiny fishing boat in danger of capsizing, they cried out to Jesus for help. And so too, the pilgrims in this psalm gave a similar testimony. They, well, you know what they did. It's there in verse 28. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. And what happened? He delivered them from their distress. God to the rescue again. In a similar way that Jesus rescued his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. This is the language of verses 29 and 30, but you know another story that goes the same way. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. If there is one thing we surely learn from this psalm, it is the power of prayer. There is no situation. And I think that is the point of having stanza after stanza. This situation and that situation, all historically true, but also in a way all universally true. There's no situation in life so hopeless that it is beyond God's ability to hear and to answer. Sometimes in pastoral ministry, I... Talk to someone who says, yes, that's true as far as it goes, but my situation is different from that. The point here is that it's every situation. It's this situation. It's that situation. Make up your own situation. It's still a situation that God will hear and answer. I think verse 27 here is especially good to remember when things are so bad we feel unable to carry on. Notice what is said of these pilgrims. They were at their wits end. They didn't know what to do. And I suppose sooner or later we all feel this way. It's a loss of a job, a sudden financial crisis, a family conflict, maybe just an overwhelming natural disaster. There are times in life when we don't know where to turn. It's tempting to lose hope. You just say, I don't know what to do. I really, I don't know what to do. Well, when this happens, there is one thing we can still do. When the storms are raging around us, we can pray that they will be stilled. And time after time, Israel's prayers were answered. And hopefully you've experienced that in your own pilgrimage. 
You prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you saw God answer and answer and answer. And you still have things to pray about. Of course you do because God still has work to do in your life and in the lives of people you love. But that track record of answered prayer is meant to be a strong encouragement. And time after time, when the psalmist prayed, God answered, and then the psalmist summoned God's people again to praise. And I think with the repeat of each new sequence of trial, petition, deliverance, the happy refrain grows stronger until it is reaching a great crescendo. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And this time, notice what what the psalmist does in verse 32. He repeats the invitation. He uses different words, but it's the same invitation. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people. Let them do this publicly. Let them praise him in the assembly of the elders. And this is, the Bible, ancient ancient Hebrew doesn't have any exclamation marks. The Bible does its exclamation marks by its repetitions. It says something and then says it again. This has been said four times, and now the fourth time, there is a fifth time added to it in different words, underscoring the priority of praise for the people of God. We can apply this corporately, publicly. We can also apply it personally. And I want to suggest one very practical way that you can apply what these stanzas do, and that is to write your own new stanzas. Because sooner or later, we're bound to suffer trials not specifically mentioned in this psalm. And as we face these trials, we will cry out to the Lord. He will hear our prayer and deliver us. Then we can respond by adding new verses. We can say, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. And then We can write our own ending. For when I was in trouble, we might say. For when I lost my way. For when I was in a mental health crisis. When I didn't have money for college. When there was a a conflict in my Christian community. When I was wronged at work. I mean, you make your own list of all the difficult situations in life. Start then with with this prayer crying out to the Lord, and then finish the verse when, you're, when, when God has acted by saying how God rescued you. This is the story of anyone who was in trouble, who prayed for help, who saw God come to the rescue and then wanted to thank him. And we, we make it our own when we sing it again and again through our, through our own earthly pilgrimage every time God saves us. Now, let me say just a few things about the end of this psalm. There is this additional stanza beginning at verse 33, and it's different. It's different in its tone. It's different in its structure. There's no specific danger here. There's no uh, explicit divine rescue. It's a praise for God's sovereignty over blessing and curse in the world. I think, in effect, what these verses do is give an account of what God's people experience after being saved. Here are the ups and downs, the successes and the failures, the prosperities and calamities in the lives of of individuals and nations, all under, ultimately, the control of Almighty God. He is the one who turns rivers into a desert and, by contrast, springs of of water into thirsty ground, uh, but also, by contrast, verse 35, turns the desert into pools of water. The fact that God has come to our rescue And has come to our rescue again does not mean our sufferings are over. But God is going to be sovereign over everything happening in life. And the overall direction 
at the end of this psalm is favorable for the righteous and the needy. Notice verse 39, when they're diminished, when they're brought low, verse 41, he's going to raise the needy up out of affliction. The upright will see it. They will be glad. The wicked will be silenced. This is the continuing story of the people of God. There will be some downs as well as ups, but it's moving in the direction of God's blessing, his lifting up, his deliverance, his gladness for the people of God. And eventually, whatever hardships we may face, especially at the hands of the high and mighty, God will cast down our enemies and silence our foes. And at this point in the psalm, I I feel like it's building up to some even more triumphant conclusion. That's not how it ends, which I find a bit surprising. What do you think of verse 43? Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. It's a note of quiet resolution. It's an invitation to contemplation. He's not saying sing out God's praises. The psalmist is saying, now you just sit there for a moment and think about this. Just reflect on what God has done for his people, what God has done for you. Attend to these things. If you're wise, you'll, you'll take a moment to ponder here. Now, of course, there's a time for singing God's praise. We're going to do that again tonight. But there is also a time for sitting back and thinking a bit about what God has done, for being still and knowing that God is God. Of course, we get such a marvelous example of this in Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus is born. The shepherds come to worship the baby in the manger. The scripture says Mary took these things and she treasured them, pondering them in her heart. Mary knew how to live out Psalm 107, verse 43. And as it was for her, it is good for us to reflect quietly on everything that God God has done for us, both personally, let him attend, let her attend, and communally, let them consider. Maybe we might say there's a time for that quiet reflection on what God has done, and then, then visit with your neighbor a little bit and share talk back and forth, consider together what God has done. And when we take the time to contemplate what God has done, one thing that is sure to stand out is how much he loves us. Look back at the first verse of Psalm 107, his steadfast love, those words appear there, and those same words appear at the end in verse 43, consider the steadfast love love of the Lord. The biblical writers love to do this, to bookend whatever they were saying with something important that should be remembered. From beginning to end, our earthly pilgrimage is meant to be a story of the abundance of God's steadfast love demonstrated in his answers to our prayers and then responded to in our praises. And the more of God's love we see, the more reasons we have to give him our thankful praise. A notable example, I believe, of reflective thanksgiving, and with this I close tonight, comes from the life of Alexander Duff. Uh, Pastor Gallagher, I'm sure, knows this great story 
because he was the first missionary sent out by the Church of Scotland. That's something to be proud of. Duff set sail for India aboard the Lady Holland. And at midnight, this was February 13, 1830, the ship ran aground while rounding the perilous Cape of Good Hope, southern tip of Africa. The ship was destroyed in the pounding surf, and yet, praise God, all lives were spared. Well, the passengers and the crew did what you would do in that situation. They made a desperate search for anything that they could salvage. And there was a sailor who found two books that had washed ashore out of a library of 800 volumes. Dear Lord, what Alexander Duff must have suffered with the loss of those books. Those were meant to be the books to help establish a Christian college. But praise God, the books that were left, can you guess? It was a Bible, of course, and his Psalter, his musical book of metrical psalms. Well, Duff gratefully took that Psalter and gathered the shipwrecked survivors for worship, reflecting on their dramatic rescue, and he just pondered for a moment, where should he turn? Ah, Psalm 107, that's the one, the pilgrim psalm. And Duff read through the psalm, and he ended with this invitation for every thankful pilgrim who ever saw God come to the rescue in any situation. It's an invitation for every lost soul who found the way home, every desperate prisoner who was set free, every sin-sick struggler who almost died but was restored to health and strength, every storm-tossed disciple almost lost at sea but landing safely on the shore. And Duff's last words in that reading were these, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Father, that is what we consider tonight. Many of us here, most of us, nearly all of us, we have some of these answers to prayer. We were at our wit's end. We didn't have what we believed we needed. We were in desperate bondage. We were weighed down by the guilt of our sin. And Lord, when we, when we prayed to you, when, when we got to that place of need where we could, could express that, that we had this need and we believed you, only you could answer, you, you delivered, you provided, you healed. You helped us find our way back home. What great praise you deserve for everything that you have done, your wondrous works. And we testify tonight that these are the evidences of a loving God, a God that we praise tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.